This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are wrapping up the book of Colossians. Today is the penultimate Sunday to study Colossians. Wrap it up. We're going to do the rest of the book next week, verses 7 through 20. Or, uh, how far does it go? Uh, 7 through 18, I guess it is. Uh, so today we're in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, uh, verses 5 and 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can grab that, uh, and it'll help you just to be able to track along with what we're talking about. It's on page 573, and uh, I'm going to read the text, and then we will um, launch into it, having prayed and already asked God for his uh, opening of our eyes. We do need him to help us see as we talk about this idea of the winsome witness. So I'm going to read the text that we read last week because this is a two-parter on verses 2 through 6. So last week we covered 2 through 4. Today we'll cover verses 5 uh, and 6. So Colossians 4 verse 2, uh, this is God's authoritative word. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Today's text. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Last week, we saw a transition in the letter that Paul, writing these new Christians in the city of Colossae, had turned from just sort of pointing them to the glorious Christ and what difference that made for them to be in Christ and describing how they were to live out their lives in Christ. He transitioned there with an emphasis on those who don't know Christ and what is the church's responsibility, this fledgling, vulnerable, arguably vulnerable church in Colossae, what is their responsibility to those who are currently once as they were without the Lord. And so we saw last week that he started with prayer. When he began to talk about mission, the mission to unbelievers, he starts with prayer. And we, we talked about last week the theme that the first step to reaching out is reaching up. We reach up to the Lord in prayer uh, to empower our reaching out to others. And in particular here, he asked for prayer that a, the door would be open for the word, the gospel. The door would be open for the gospel to walk through and uh, reach people. So that's what we talked about last week. We said that the verses 2 through 4 are about uh, talking to God regarding the mission. It's about talking talking to God about people, and verses 5 and 6 is about talking to people about God, and that's where we are today. We're going to see what he has to say about how, what is the church's responsibility to talk to people about God. Now, we might expect him to emphasize what we are to communicate with unbelievers, yet in this text, he stresses how we are to communicate with unbelievers. There'd be other texts that talk about uh, the message of the gospel. Well, he has talked about that throughout this letter, but here, his greater concern is the manner in which Christians relate with those who are, who are unbelievers. 
the content of the gospel is obviously critical. Um, he's been arguing against people that are misrepresenting grace as false teachers. But it's not enough to get the message right. It's not enough to get the message right. The message must shape the messenger so that his or her attitude commends the message rather than distracts from the message. It's possible to communicate the message but do so in an incongruent way so that it distracts from the message rather than commending the message. It's not in the words alone that we use when we're relating with people who don't know Jesus. Our delivery matters. Our attitude matters. When my kids were younger, they're all grown now, but when my kids are younger, I I can remember at various times angrily correcting their anger. Some of you are laughing because you did the same thing this morning with little kids. But I can remember saying, stop being angry with your brother. Now, the words are correct. But the delivery confused the message because the kid's got to be wondering, oh, I get it. So don't be angry like you're not being angry currently, Dad. Uh, do, Do as you say, not as you do. The message confused, I'm sorry, the delivery confused the message. Uh, The good news should sound like good news. The good news should sound like good news. It should feel like good news. It should look like good news delivered from a person who appears to have believed and been changed by the good news. We might call this being winsome. So I wanted to talk about the winsome witness. The word winsome is not commonly used. I I looked at a graph of word usage, and it peaked in about 1900, the frequency of the word winsome. But since 2010, it is on the rise, and I'm part of a movement to bring it back. Winsome. It means attractive, not in terms of physical appearance, but it means something that's attractive or that would draw someone in. It means to be engaging, to be joyful, to be cheerful, to be pleasant. The winsome witness is the witness for whom the good news has made a difference and the good news message has formed the good news messenger. See, verses 2 through 4 have to be connected to 5 through 6 because we can't pray for open doors and then respond and act in front of individuals who don't know Christ in a way that would cause them to want to shut the door. You don't pray for open doors and then act self-righteous or belligerent or unloving and cause the person at the door to want to shut it. So in this passage, Paul gives three instructions for the winsome witness, three instructions for the good news messenger who's been shaped by the good news. He says three things, live wisely, speak graciously, listen carefully. Live wisely, speak graciously, listen carefully. Live wisely, first of all. Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom. Now, the ESV translates this, this verb, walk, that's, that's literally what the, word, uh, what the word means, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to do with a physical walk. It's using it in a metaphorical sense. Walk means how you live. That's why you've heard someone say, you know, you, uh, don't talk the talk if you don't walk the walk. What does that mean? Does it have to do with a physical stroll? Well, of course not. It has to do with don't say one thing and live differently. And so the word walk is a picture of one's life. It's the way you live. That's why the New Living Translation translates this, live wisely. 
live wisely toward outsiders. Live wisely toward outsiders. Now, I want to say something here because the use of the word outsiders is interesting. It's not a common term uh, that we find all over the New Testament. In one sense, the Colossians, these, 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 this fledgling church, these new Christians, they're outsiders, aren't they? There's a sense in which they are outsiders, and it's interesting that that's not his point to highlight that reality. You see, they are a marginalized religious group in what is something of a hostile environment towards Christianity. So they are, they are marginalized. They are outside uh, the center of religious belief in Colossae. They believe that there is one God. That view alone would separate them from most everyone in their culture who would have believed in multiple gods. So they believe there's one God alone. And beyond that, they believe that that one God became a man, was crucified, died, and then rose from the dead. So this, this view, which would have been very odd in their culture, puts them side, outside the common religious views of their day. Not only that, but it also, uh, what came with it were a number of practices that would have been common outside the, the day. Their, their sexual ethics, uh, their sexual mores from the Christian life, their family life, which he just addressed, how husbands and wives viewed each other and treated each other, how parents related with children and vice versa, would have been very different than the culture around them. So there's a real sense in which they are uh, outsiders themselves. And it's worth noting that here, he, he, uh, he doesn't play on that. Rather, he puts them to the inside. He wants them to have a different perspective. He wants this sense that you are an insider to be part of their identity. Now, we are outsiders of the culture. That's part of our identity as well. And uh, the book of 1 Peter addresses that. We taught, taught that book a few years ago. 1 Peter addresses what it's like to be an alien and a stranger to your culture. And we all are that. Uh, but here in this instance, he wants them to view themselves as insiders because he, he puts those, he, he calls others outsiders, namely those who don't know Christ. The outsiders are those outside the church, those outside of Christ. They are outside the saving grace of Jesus. And so he says, I want you to live wisely toward or the New Living Translation says among. I want you to live wisely among outsiders. This presupposes a few things. For instance, he presupposes that they will actually be among those who are unbelievers. That's a starting place. His, 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 he doesn't even give a thought that there would be some kind of holy huddle uh, sort of this sequestered fortress mentality of Christians that are gathered within the walls and insulated from the exterior world. He didn't even address that. It's just a given. Hey, walk in wisdom toward the outsiders. Live wisely among those that, that don't believe we're around you, your family, uh, your extended family, your coworkers, your neighbors, these are people who, if they don't know Christ, are viewed as outsiders. So he's saying live with wisdom. First of all, make sure that you're living among them, that anyone would even be able to do the things that he speaks about later, that they would even hear your speech, your gracious speech, that they, you would even have an opportunity to listen carefully to someone. Make sure that you are among them. And the fact that that is a default understanding says something to those of us who've been Christians for a while who may have 
sort of drifted away and now uh, from our, our world, our culture, our relationships, and sort of just formed relationships, primarily uh, friendships with Christians, that this says something to us right here that, that, uh, that, that gets our attention. Among the outsiders, make sure you're walking in wisdom. How do we do that? Well, I thought about this. I mean, I don't think it's helpful to give you a checklist of actions that are wise, though I'm going to identify one unwise practice, but I, I, don't think it's, I don't think I should just give you, do this checklist of things, and then that's wise living among outsiders, because everybody has different relationships, different stages of life, different opportunities, um, different cultures. We're, we're, a, we're a diverse group, so I can't just give a checklist. So I think what would be more helpful is to talk some about our identity, and I think if we understand the identity he has in view here, I think the actions will flow a lot more normally, uh, easily, naturally, we could say. I, I think what we have to ask when it says walk in wisdom toward outsiders, I think the first question is, what makes me an insider? If there is this outside-inside mentality, how am I on the inside? This is the starting place. Why am I no longer an outsider? Well, it's not because of my superiority in any way. We aren't smarter. We aren't wiser than those who don't know Christ. I hope you know we're not morally superior. There are many unbelievers. I've met many unbelievers that are far kinder than I am far more loving and compassionate than I am. If you think Christians are morally in every way superior to every unbeliever, well, that's just not true. That's just not true. It's not our superiority in any way that makes us on the inside. It's simply that we have experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is what brings us to the inside. We were all once outsiders, but salvation has come to us, and it is the work of God. It is not our work. He has made this point early in the letter. Look at chapter 1. Flip back if you have a Bible or scroll back on your phone. Um, on, uh, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, look at how he starts. He says, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. What qualifies you as an insider? He has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Only God can qualify someone as an insider. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Only God moves you from outsider to insider. Jared read this morning, it was while we were still sinners, yet sinners, that Christ died for us. We are defined by grace. We're not defined because we're smarter than the world. Can you believe the world? All that they believe, all that they do. I can't believe, I would never do, whenever that comes to your mind, I would never. Grace went out the door. Of course you might do that, and you probably did worse. It is grace it is grace that must define us. So when we think about living wisely, let's just live with an awareness that I too was an outsider and I'm only an insider because Jesus died and rose for me and came looking for me and sought me and drew him to himself. It's the only reason. Nothing is more unwise among unbelievers. Nothing is more unwise than outsiders than self-righteousness. 
Because self-righteousness, we have it together, we know better, we're more moral, we're politically right, whatever it is. Self-righteousness is offensive to outsiders, but more importantly, it's offensive to God. It's forgetting what made you an insider. Self-righteousness acts like I'm an insider based on me, when the reality is you weren't even, it's not that you were struggling or that you were sick or that you were really hurting morally and spiritually, you were dead and God raised you to life in Christ. See, that changes everything. One of, the mo- one of the strongest critiques of Christians in our culture, I suppose in every culture, but I only know the American context well, um, the, the, the strongest critique of Christians in our culture is that we act superior, that we treat people like acts, outsiders and act like we are better. When it says outsiders, it doesn't mean that we're better, it just means that we've experienced grace and they haven't. We judge others. And then we end up looking like hypocrites to them because we're yelling at the angry kids, <laughs> pointing our finger at them and doing the same thing. Now, sometimes it is a false charge, no doubt, that Christians all act morally superior. Sometimes the person is convicted by their own sin, and so to deflect, you point to someone else and say, well, you're a hypocrite, which really doesn't get you off the hook for your own actions. But it's oftentimes a true charge. And it's real because we aren't living humbly as those who are daily amazed to be insiders. Here's a key way to live wisely among outsiders. Be more aware of your sinfulness than theirs. We should be more aware of our own sinfulness. And we should be looking at at outsiders as those who were created in the image of God. Image bearers with a shared humanity with us. And we're seeking to build a bridge to them to tell them the good news. That God can rescue them from their sin and raise them from their spiritual death. See, when when I'm more aware of of my sin than the outsider's sin, grace will cause my heart to break for them rather than judge them. And look at them with an air of superiority. And then my attitude, what I have to share will sound like good news to them. It's an affront when I'm unaware of my brokenness and my sinfulness, more aware of them, and then relating with some kind of attitude of superiority. There's a lot of Christians in the room, and I assure you, none of them came to Christ because they were scolded, scolded into believing. Nobody came into Christ because they were put down by someone self-righteous, and they said, wow, your Jesus is amazing. Let me in. Not one person. Not one person saw a Facebook rant judging all kinds of unbelievers or certain types of unbelievers or certain types of sin said, wow, that is powerful. What must I do to be saved? It doesn't happen. It's when people come alongside. Do you, do you relate well, Christian or not Christian? Do you feel comfortable when someone comes judging you in superiority? Do you find that to be helpful and winsome? Do you find that to draw your heart in? We want to share the good news that has changed our lives, and we want it to sound like good news because we are needy, broken people who are amazed at what God has done for us. Well, he says that living wisely also realizes, means realizing that the time is short and we need to make the best use of it. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
in our common popular speech, we might say live intentionally. Live intentionally. Make the most of the time. For those that God has put into your life that don't know him, live intentionally with a purpose. Making the most of the time, the older translations called that redeeming the time. Because the verb means to buy up time. It's like being a bargain hunter. I want to buy up what I can. I want to find the good deal while it's there. It means act wisely now. Snap up, one commentator said, snap up every opportunity that comes. Snap up every opportunity that comes. So there's an urgency to act wisely around unbelievers. So if you can feel, there's a bit of a tension here, I think. There is, there's an urgent message, but, I don't del- but the urgency shouldn't lead me to deliver it in a way that's insensitive or uncaring or unrelational or humble uh, or patient with an unbeliever, as God has been patient with me. It's a blend of wise behavior and urgency. Wise behavior and urgency. We want both. Well, how do you do that? The grace of God. The grace of God to, to, to live with both of these. Wise behavior and urgency towards outsiders. In his commentary on uh, Colossians, Dick Lucas makes the point uh, that it's hard to hold them together. And he makes a wise observation. He says, it's usually the new convert that's urgent. The new convert gets this redeem the time, gets this, uh, the thought of make the best use of the time. It's the new convert that gets the urgency but usually lacks tact, sensitivity, care, love, and patience. And he says older Christians often have the wisdom of experience and patience, but sometimes they lack boldness. They lack zeal as a witness. I thought, man, I've been in both of those places. And, uh, and I wish I had right now uh, my teenage, college-age zeal that just didn't respect certain boundaries that should have been respected. I wish I had that zeal and the wisdom I have now combined together. And if you're young and zealous as a new believer, we wish for you that you had the wisdom that comes with age and patience as well. And maybe we'll tap you on the shoulder and share that at some appropriate time. But, uh, but we need both. We need zeal and we need wisdom. We need urgency and we need patience because God has to do the work. We need redeem the time and build a relationship. We got to have both. We got to have both. If you're here and you not, would not consider yourself a Christian and you say, well, I look at that and I, I think I've seen a lot of unwise behavior. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. Maybe you're thinking, man, I've seen a lot of hypocrisy. I've seen a lot of people who were self-righteous. I've seen a lot of urgent people to tell me something, hand me a, hand me a track or tell me to, I'm a sinner, or at least that's what I felt. I've seen a lot of social media posts that felt that way, but I haven't really felt very many people sort of reach out to me with, as if I'm human, one human to another. And if that's your situation where you've been treated, what Paul would say unwisely, I, I'm sorry that's been your experience. Um, the reality is our Jesus is perfect and we are far from it. And we as Christians often fail to represent him in the way that we should. And that, that, grieves, that grieves us when we're thinking right. That grieves us that we would misrepresent him in that way. The reality is that Jesus comes to us in our sin. You are a sinner. If you've heard that message, that's true. 
That part is true. I'm a sinner. We all are sinners in need of rescue. And the way we are forgiven for our sin and given new life is by believing that Jesus, the God-man, came and died for our sins, took our sins, and rose to new life, defeating the power of sin, uh, defeating the power of death. He came to restore all things, to make all things new. The world was created in perfection, but because of human failure, human sin, human rebellion against God uh, by Adam and Eve, everyone since then has been on a trajectory, a natural trajectory away from God. And so Christ came to, Jesus Christ came to give us new life. And uh, we're all accountable. There's hypocrites all around us, but here I want to lovingly tell you, we're all accountable for our own lives. I won't answer for any hypocrite. I'll answer for me and my hypocrisy, but not someone else's. So wherever you are, I urge you to reconsider, to look past the bad example, uh, look past the angry parent yelling at a kid, and uh, realize that there's truth in the message, even if the messenger uh, didn't do so well at points, and know that Jesus Jesus is, is uh, a loving Christ who draws us to himself. And I just want you to know that today. If you want to know more, please see one of us who's been up here talking or singing. We'll be glad to help you or the person that invited you. We'd be glad to help you however we can explain that. Live wisely toward outsiders. Next he says, speak graciously. Look what he says. Let your speech, verse 6, always be gracious seasoned with salt. Uh, This refers to our manner of our speech. Now, certainly we speak words of grace. I want to emphasize that we speak words of grace, but we also speak graciously. That is, how does grace affect our words? What is gracious speech? Well, this is going to sound a lot like the first point, but gracious speech is speech that reflects a heart that has been touched by grace. So when grace enters our world, when we realize that God has moved us from outside to inside all by his doing and not our own, it destroys our self-righteousness and is intended to produce humility. Gracious words are spoken by someone who is humble. Gracious words are grateful words. No one should be more grateful than a Christian because we didn't achieve acceptance by God. We were given it freely by what Jesus did for us. We should be gloriously grateful. And that, that characterizes the speech of a, of a person who's touched grace. They have a gracious speech, a joyful speech, a peaceful speech. Let your words, both verbal and text and digital words in social media or email, whatever, we've got a lot of ways of communicating words. Let your words show the good news. Gracious speech is speech that sounds like someone who has encountered grace. I love what David Garland said in his commentary about this. He says, the experience of grace should make us gracious. The experience of grace should make us gracious. And I want you to get that because it's not a list of words I can give you that are the grace words. It comes from a changed heart. The person who's experienced grace should be a gracious person. Use words that are seasoned with salt. This is kind of funny given modern, uh, modern vernacular because he's saying use salty speech. And in modern vernacular, salty speech means profanity, uh, that salty, uh, risque speech, rude speech. Wow, she's kind of salty, like a rude attitude or something like that. So he doesn't mean be risque or rude, I can assure you. 
In Paul's day, salty speech meant something different than it does now, to be salty in his word. It meant, if you think literally about salt, I mean, not literally, but if you think actually about salt, you'll think it's a seasoning, it's a flavoring. Let your words be flavorful, in in essence, is what he's saying. Let them be a seasoning. Don't be dry or apathetic with the gospel. Let your speech be interesting. The metaphor can actually even mean, it was actually even used to mean clever or witty. You don't need to be a stand-up comedian, but it does mean that make your speech winsome. It's appealing. It's attractive. It's the good news after all. It's the good news. When we speak graciously and kindly and in an engaging way about Jesus, it affects people and it undermines their, their preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. It disarms the, the, uh, the previous experience they've had where they prejudge us to be self-righteous, condemning, unloving, know-it-all, narrow, all these kinds of things. It, the person with gracious speech undermines all of that. The person who's joyful, the person who can laugh at themselves, the person who's self-aware of their own weaknesses and sins, and is just grateful to God for all that he has done for us. We need the experience of grace to be ones who speak gracious words. I recently heard a message from Tim Keller where he was talking about the idea of uh, uh, reaching out and connecting with people that don't know Christ. And he was giving reasons that we often don't do that. And one of his primary reasons is he said, we often don't speak about God's grace to others because we don't live with the inward spiritual reality of grace in our own lives. He asks, do you really experience the love of God in your soul? Again, I know I'm going all heart here, and I haven't given you the, the strategy. What are the words? Tell me the ten words. I'm not going to tell you the ten grace words. I don't know the ten grace words. It's, it's, a, it's, it's the heart. Do I experience the grace and love of God? Because if I do, it will be far more natural to talk about him with others. It will be a natural part of my life to communicate about what Christ has done for me. It's natural to talk about the joy of the ones we love. Ask any, any this is true of parents, but uh, it's really true of grandparents. Ask any grandparent, hey, on your phone, do you have any pictures of your grandkids? Watch them light up and talk, tell you way more than you wanted to know about the one they love. Because when you love, when you're grateful, when you're joyful, it's just natural. It doesn't feel like, okay, i got to corner them in. we got to have the talk now. i got to corner you in. You know, what would happen if you died tonight and stood before God and said, how would you give an account? Okay, there's the closing question. You know, it doesn't feel like a sales pitch. Gracious words come from a heart touched by grace. And that kind of salty speech, that kind of flavorful speech will have an effect on others. The late Howard Hendricks, who taught like forever at Dallas Seminary, he, he once said this. He said, according to the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. That's true, he said, but you can feed him salt. You can feed him salt. Our words of grace coming from a heart experiencing the love of God, are salt that make others thirsty for the God we know and are describing. Gracious words, salty words, 
when received and heard by others with whom we love, can make them thirst for the God we're describing. Do you see that? That's, that's why it's so important. So really, rather than just telling you what is gracious speech, I'd rather ask you, are you experiencing the inward spiritual experience of grace? That's what we need. We need the good news affecting our hearts. Are you close enough to others to talk about that experience? The experience of grace should make us gracious, and that affects our speech. So we live wisely, we speak graciously, and last, we listen carefully. Now, I know he doesn't use the word listen here, but it's implied. He says, verse 6, let your, salt always be, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, rather, so that you may know how to answer each person. What you, when he talks about answering, to give an answer means they've asked me a question or they've said something to me. To give an answer is to respond to someone else. So here he's saying, he's talking about how we respond, know how to give an answer. Listen, each person has a different life experience and asks different questions about God, different questions about faith. And so we must get to know people. We must get to understand people as human take an interest in them, demonstrating a sensitivity so that we answer their questions, not ours. That's very, uh, that's all the more true in the current, uh, the current ethos of our country, uh, and especially among millennials. Um, the idea of dialogue, the idea of asking honest questions, not, the idea of not being afraid of any question, but being willing to dialogue and talk about uh, what concerns someone or what their questions might be. They're so valuable. I think in evangelism, uh, obviously we need training in what is the gospel and how do we communicate that. But I, I'm convinced that most of us need more training in listening than we do in speaking. Because it's not really about delivering a canned presentation. It's about knowing a person. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, which I think is the longest interaction he ever has with an individual in the Bible, uh, he speaks to her, he breaks all the cultural barriers and speaks to her as a person. He doesn't deliver to canned speech. He speaks of her life. He reaches her hopes, her dreams. He knows what her fears are. Now, he's God. He can see things that we can't. I get that. But he, he draws her out and connects with her personally. We want to understand what is on someone else's mind instead of just communicating what is ours. And often we only get their questions when we connect with them, when we're real, when we're regular, when we're, okay, this is earth-shattering, when we're normal. <laughs> we have far more in common with outsiders than we, uh, than we know. We're all made of the same stuff. I heard an illustration shared by uh, Michael Ramsden. Michael Ramsden is a, uh, he's an apologist. He's, a, uh, he's written on conversational apologetics. He, and so he just travels around and teaches. Apologetics is a, sort of giving a defense for Christianity, giving a defense for the faith, that sort of thing. So he speaks at universities and all kinds of places. And he shared a story about being invited to a dinner 
with college students. So he was on a campus probably doing a presentation. And he was invited to go to a dinner with a group of college students. And the, and the host had this purpose. I, they, we're going to ask you questions about Christianity. So you're going to grill, uh, grill the guy. You know, we're going to sit around the table and they're going to ask, I'm sure, questions, most, many of which he would have heard before. But he wouldn't know their personal lives or anything like that. So he comes to the dinner ready to do his best answering questions. No one asked one question about Christianity or faith. They just talked about life. He just asked them questions about their lives. They talked about their lives. I'm sure studies, girls, guys, sports, culture, entertainment, politics, whatever it was, and he went home. The next morning, he said he got a call from the guy who coordinated the dinner, and the guy who coordinated the dinner said he was so disappointed None of the students asked any questions. But the reason they didn't, he said, is that they were so surprised, so shocked that he didn't cram religion down their throat. They they didn't know how to react. And so now they were saying, could you come back tonight for a dinner and we're bringing all of our questions. And he returned and they did so. They came with tons of questions. We're called to listen because we are called to love. We start with listening. And oftentimes that can be so disarming. How patient he was. I would have, if I was invited to a dinner to answer questions for a table full of unbelievers, which does not happen uh, in my life much, which is somewhat telling in itself. But if I were invited, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, I would have, I would have so what do y'all, you, we were going to talk about God, right? I mean, that's what we're here for. I would have jumped to that instead of just loving people, caring for them, letting them. I'm the guest, trusting Christ, showing an interest, being normal, and blowing them away because they didn't expect normalcy. In the same talk I just referenced from Tim Keller earlier, he, he said that to connect with outsiders, we need to be relational and knowledgeable. And he said, of the two, relational is more important. Here's why. He said, no one can answer everybody's questions. We want to be knowledgeable. We want to know the gospel. We want to be ready to give an answer and give a defense anytime we are asked. But you're never going to be able to answer all the questions. But if you have a relationship, if you are relational, if you have trust, if I am trusted by the person, then we can explore the questions together. We can figure it out together. We can find a resource. We can talk to somebody. I don't know, but I can, I can, I've got Google and a theological library. We'll figure it out, okay? Or we'll find someone who does know. But if I don't have trust and relationship, I have nowhere to go. We have to be relational and knowledgeable. But of the two, relational is perhaps more important. It's not just about supplying answers. It's about listening and supplying them in a certain way. First Peter, there's a passage in First Peter uh, chapter 3 that talks about this giving an answer. This is what 1 Peter three fifteen says. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make an offense, defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. I, when I was growing up, I was trained in how to give the answer, how to make the defense. But it's not just making the defense. It's not just giving the answer. It's how. 
It's with gentleness, and it's with respect to those who would be different from us. That includes sit-down conversations, and that includes the way we respond on social media as well, knowing that outsiders are looking at what I'm saying. Would, it be, would I be opening a door? Am I salty? Would I be opening a door for a conversation? Would someone see what I post and say, you know what, offline in real life, say, hey, can we get together? I, I'm sort of compelled by something. I just have some, they probably wouldn't say that. I have some questions about some of the stuff that you are saying. Gentleness and respect. How many, I wonder, how many Muslims might be asking Christians questions if they felt they would be given an answer that respected them rather than feared them? How many Muslims might ask questions if they felt that the response would be from someone who says, I respect you as someone who bears the image of the Creator as a human, just as I, and I want to respond gently as one who needs a Savior. I wonder how many people in the LGBT community might ask questions of Christians if they were confident that the answer that they got, a defense to be sure, biblically, but that the answer they got would be given by someone who was gentle and respectful of them as an individual. If they felt like they would be viewed as a friend and not an enemy, not someone a part of the big, bad, scary outside trying to destroy me, but rather someone for whom Christ died that we love. These verses that we're talking about here, they are so important, and here's why. Because in Paul's letters in particular, there's very, very little about how to react around outsiders. There's a lot about character, but there's very little specific instruction on how do you act towards outsiders. I've read you two of the prominent texts in the New Testament. First Peter, which is people under persecution which says don't view yourself as a victim and rise up in vengeful anger. It says gentleness and respect when you're being persecuted. And Paul, who says here, seasoned with salt, gracious words, live wisely, answer each person. Know how to answer each person. Think each individual person, which presupposes knowledge of them and care for them and interest in them, presupposes knowing them. It presupposes asking them questions. That's why this is so important. I read something this week that I just thought, man, I hope I never forget this. It's not a Bible verse, but it's a summary of this passage. And David Garland, in his commentary, when he talked about this passage that we're looking at, living wisely, speaking graciously, listening carefully, this is what he said, before we can make disciples, we need to make friends. I thought, how simple is that? How beautiful is that? That before we can make disciples, we need to make friends. We just need to be open and honest and real. Ask questions, get to know, treat people as a person and not an evangelism project, realizing that God's work of salvation is his and not ours. The gospel teaches we have a common humanity with all people, so it shouldn't be odd that we could befriend or relate with any type of person, knowing that we too were once outsiders far from God. It removes a lot of the pressure to not have to have it all together, or to act like we have it all together, but to be real. It removes a lot of pressure. To live wisely means to be human, to build a bridge and not a wall with outsiders, 
to be cognizant that I am a recipient of grace, speaking graciously and to be among them. Speaking graciously is allowing our experience of grace to shape our words and overflow from an inward spiritual reality of grace. Listening carefully is loving another person enough to understand their life experience so that we may give an answer that we ought to answer each person. It means that I know something about them. I'm getting to know that I'm caring so that I could respond in an appropriate way. If making disciples starts with making friends and relating in this way, I want to ask you, how is God speaking to you today? I think he's speaking to all of us. How is he speaking to you today? Well, there's kind of two ways he might be speaking to us, verse 5 or verse 6. Verse 5 might be speaking to us about access. Do, do you have unbelievers? Do you have outsiders? Do you have unchurched people outside the grace of God in your life, in your circle of friends, in your circle of people that you know and love and are growing in relationship with? Maybe God's speaking to you to sort of uh, invest more fully in that coworker. Uh, invest more in a more real way in a member of your extended family, of someone you play golf with, with one of the parents on your kid's sports team, uh, on a neighbor, a neighbor that lives in your complex or your neighborhood. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's access. Paul assumes access here. I don't think we should assume access. They're brand new Christians in a culture that's entirely dark with no Christian history. It's safe to assume access. There's like going to the mission field, reaching people who don't know anything about Jesus, calling them to Christ. They're going to be everybody they know, everybody uh, in their contacts is an unbeliever. But once you live in a world where there's a more established Christian society like us, access becomes a very important question. Maybe it's access. That doesn't mean that I just kind of know. I ride the elevator up to the office each day, and there's like some outsiders in the elevator. It means I'm, I'm taking an interest. I'm having a meal, grabbing coffee, having someone over, those kinds of things, building a friendship. Maybe it's not access. Maybe it's attitude, the, the attitude that, of grace that changes our speech, the attitude of grace that asks questions and takes an interest, the attitude of grace that loves someone and reflects the good news listening to a different point of view, listening to a different point of view that comes with heat and responding with gentleness and respect for them. Respect. So what is your response? Maybe God's speaking to you about access. Maybe he's speaking to you about attitude. Maybe he's speaking to you about embracing the gospel in a fresh way so that you're even thinking about those who don't know Christ. Maybe he's encouraging you to press on. Maybe you're doing this and you're discouraged because it seems to be going nowhere with your family member or your friend or your coworker. And you needed to hear that, you know, God works. This is, this is the methodology. You're on the right track. You're loving, you're befriending, you're caring. You're on the right track. Press on and trust him. Maybe that's what you need today. Whatever you need, whatever God is speaking, let's make a commitment to take a next step. I don't know what your next step is. It'll be different. Let's make a commitment for that. We're going to pray, and I'm going to just give a moment of silence for us each to pray to the Lord and ask him how he is calling us to respond uh, to these words about living wisely, speaking graciously, listening carefully. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.